Welcome to Accounting High. This whole concept like of work-life balance, I think is a kind of a, I would say almost like a toxic concept mm. in the sense that if, if it's viewed as like, you know, work and life are, you know, like oil and water, that they're, they're just like designed to be apart. I think that it, it sets you up for this tension. It's like lifelong battle where essentially you say like half of my life is squandered in the service of the other half of my life. And I think that's just kind of an attitude. I think that we should view life, the balance should be like oil and vinegar. You should shake it up really nice and make a salad dressing out of it. It could be delicious together, but only if it's well mixed. our class it's the guide please take a seat step into this unique guidance session navigate with me it's the capital s oh yes i'm fresh c double o t y apostrophe okr apostrophe you see the show is intended to guide you with advice vision goals on mission it's time accounting high yeah this profession i think they're in the mood for some fun and inspiration Hell okay yeah. what up scott gotta lead with ambition what's that greed you gotta grab your attention intention and it's gotta be abundant public accountants in unexpected places we ask for your attention conversations about the state of the profession emotional intelligence atomic habits in a bundle infinite game rye holiday we stay humble find your purpose in class with tech apps jedi mindsets james ash has got your back for health to discuss her vision for the profession evolution conversation with jeff wilson the second and i'm gonna continue to put the rap down with impact now and if you're active listening mind the imagination gap now yeah janitor scott coming to you live from the closet with a bucket and a mop so find a cozy spot we all want financial freedom a-c-c-o-u-n-t-i-n-g-h-i-g-h preach putting this course together sit back relax open your mind classes and session guidance class at accounting high it's guidance class at accounting high and um it's guidance monday in accounting high show so tune in to the next episode Scott Scarano, Jason Ackerman. We're going to have a problem here. But the real star of this show is our very special guest, David Barrett from Expensify. Well, I'm flattered to be here. Thanks so much. You're flattered to be here. I'm, thank you for coming on. Thank you so much. This is this is. I'm so excited. I'm like nervous i don't even know what i'm gonna say right now so gotta hold me back <laughs> scott's been texting me like non-stop for like the last two weeks yeah so i'm here i've been put here to change the accounting profession move the industry forward it's a very slow moving beast and you you're put here to change the world save the world right how can you help change the accounting profession because i think that that is a that is a nut to crack and i think that that's obviously why you're putting on you know like that you've you guys have done a lot for the accounting profession i think but the accounting profession doesn't ever give love back well, what, tell me a little I, bit there yeah. i feel like I, I, we feel very loved by the accounting profession right. um and so yeah i think absolutely i mean they're a huge partner of ours and have always been so i, I never I, feel I love from the accounting profession <laughs> And I am the accounting <laughs> profession, but keep going. It's so cynical. Everybody's uh, so cynical and so like 
depends on but how even you that i would say like you started like we want to change the accounting profession i would say like change is not intrinsically good i would say like the way internally i would say one of the greatest skills we have in expensify is that we don't do anything without def defining the problem we're trying to solve like even internally it's like oh, i want to do this particular thing and be like you know what's what's the problem what's the problem solution statement for that and this is like a real internal thing that's to us um, and then so I'm like, well, I think I'm going to solve this problem. And then we would talk about the problem far more than we would talk about the solution. Because most things, most changes are designed to accomplish something, but no one actually figures out what. And so it's like they just build it and then like they don't know where they get out of it. So I would say if we're going to change the accounting profession, I don't know that in, in broad strokes it needs to change. I mean, like it does a good job. At what, it's there for a reason. The people involved and like the, or the certifications, like they're, it's good. Like even... I was shocked actually becoming a public company. Like everyone talks about, oh, it's the worst. When you think of a public company, it's like there's just socks and SEC and all this just like so insane and pointless. I disagree. I would say going into it, our interaction with the SEC, super reasonable. Every request, it's like, that makes sense. I mean, it's a high bar. Don't get me wrong. You're holding, they're holding companies to a, a level of excellence, but it's not an unreasonable level. It's basically, it's like, do all this stuff which is actually kind of common sense, but do it all and we're gonna measure you on it. And you're like, okay, that's kind of hard. But like the actual underlying logic is pretty sound for pretty much all of this stuff. And everyone involves, when you hire an auditor, you're like, oh, I hate my auditors. It's like, you pay them. You pay them to do exactly what they're doing. And it's not that you hate them, it's that you hate that you are not able to live up to your, the expectations that you are paying them to hold you to. And like, yeah, it is hard being SOX compliant is hard going through a PCA or the audit or whatever that is, but it's not hard because it's unreasonable. It's hard because it's a high standard, but the good standards. And so I don't know. I just kind of a little bit pushed back on the idea that the accounting industry just needs some kind of radical change. Everything can improve and evolve, but I think by and large, it's like they just do a great job. Yeah, I think it's mindsets though, and and maybe I'm I'm a little too hyper focused and I'm I'm too involved anyway. But let's go back out. You've been known to take very big swings, and it always works out and i think i don't know how, how do you describe that like for somebody from the outside some people may say oh that's not fair they're doing this and they're not supposed to do this like how do you respond to stuff like that hmm that's interesting i'd be like <laughs> like where, where did you get these concepts and like i don't even know <laughs> like you you're th that person would be operating under some sort of non-existent constraints and i'd be like those are not real things constraints and just yeah non-existent. Yeah. I, I think the, the one way to think about it is there are no rules, there's only consequences. And, there's, and they're quite different. <laughs> I love that um, quote. Like I would <laughs> <Yes>. say, <laughs> because like there's no rule against pulling your bicycle up to the semi that has its right turn to sign on. Like you can do that, but you're going to get run over. The rule is not the important thing. It's like, what happens if you do this particular action? And so I would say, I think people invent all these rules in their minds. Like, and they're like, I mean, again, I mean, doing like PCIB, SEC, these rules have consequences. You f around with this, bad things happen. And so that's important to understand. But there's also a lot of stuff that people think, oh, it's a rule, you can't do this particular thing that has no consequences. And then it's just like, okay, well, what happens if this actually happens? And so I think the vast majority of rules are fake rules uh, that were invented for various reasons that have nothing to do with your success. And so I think you just always challenge them and say like, no, this company, we can do whatever we want. This is our company. If it's legal, my attorneys tell me it's going to be fine. And I think it's going to drive the business and help us live rich, have fun, save the world. Like we're going to do it. 
I think the challenge is having the courage to do this thing that people think is stupid. And like, and a lot of what we do, I mean, for especially back in the early days, people just thought it was the dumbest. They're just like, what are you talking about? Like, why would you build a company this way? It makes no sense. Um, people say that to and, me all the time. Uh, yeah. And so, I, but I think it's, it's like, well, it doesn't have to make sense to you. Like, I'm not, I'm not asking you. Like, this is my company. Like, whatever. Like, you don't, you don't want to work here? Cool. Most people don't. That's fine. It's like, you do want to work here? Well, maybe you can't because he has weird attitudes. Um, and so it's just fine. So that plays into a question Nicole had. She was going to ask, do you have any self-doubt? Do you ever run into hmm. situations where you kind of doubt yourself or you question your decisions or your motives or? I mean, yeah, this is the whole like imposter's dilemma kind of thing. A, what dilemma? Imposter's dilemma, where everyone feels that they're just inadequate. I would say, do I have self-doubt? I don't know. I, I think that I think that got burned out of me throughout <laughs> my career. Like, so like when I, I, I've been a programmer since I was six. And so like computer graphics and video games for like middle school and high school and things like this. Worked in a virtual reality lab, and I was type of like an engineer my entire life, uh, and a good one. But I also, when I was growing up, I literally didn't know a single person who programmed. I didn't have any friends. It's like it just this is the BBS days sort of thing. It's so I, I had no one to compare myself to, and I just and probably and I had a lot of doubt as a as a consequence. I'm like, I don't am I any good? I have no idea. I remember actually, I, I took my, my my very first programming class. I went to this uh, local college in Saginaw, Michigan. And I showed up and I was like, you know, and it was the first project. And oddly enough, it was actually a weird accounting project. It was like, make an accounting system and like, and make it look nuts, you know, use colors and things like that. And I'm like, oh, okay, this is, all right, here we go. And so I make, and this is like, I make this gooey windowing system and all this sort of stuff. And like, you know, for this accounting system. And then we're going to demo it in front of the entire company. And I'm nervous because I'm like, I've never, I'm, these are all college kids. I'm in high school. Like I'm going to get massacred here. And then the first person goes up, it's like, well, you know, for my system, I chose the color blue. And then it's just basically this text-based thing. And I'm like, oh, what? That, oh, God. Like, everyone's going to hate me because this is just nothing of the same. So I went to the teacher afterwards. And, uh, and I'm like, yeah, can I show you my, my project in private? She's like, I get it. You're the young kid here. I get it. It's pretty daunting. Then I show her my project. She's like, whoa, what are you doing in this class? I'm like, I, I don't know. I had to start somewhere. She's like, yeah, not here. And so I think that I was always struck by, I had a tremendous amount of confidence coming in as an engineer, but I had extraordinary doubt about everything else. And I think that as, as you grow up as an engineer, like, oh, that's cute that you can do programming, but you don't know business, you know, marketing, anything about finance, this, this, just stay in, your, stay in your box there and then let the adults do the real stuff. Uh, it was kind of the attitude that was pounded to me at, at every point in my career for so long. And I just kept seeing the same mistakes being made in the business and all the other stuff. It's just like, it just made no sense. It's like, why are you doing that? Make no sense whatsoever. And people are getting paid top dollar to make the dumbest mistakes again and again. And then eventually, like, man, there's a series of epiphanies across my entire life that all come back to, like, no one has a clue what they're doing. Like, no one knows. Everyone's just making it up as they go and then, like, trying to pretend, like, somehow they're better than you. And I think that you know, so I started this company when it's like uh, 14 years ago, I'm 46 now. So it's probably like 40. No, sorry, my math is great. You can tell I'm good <laughs> at the counting. So like, you know, 32 or something like this when I started the company. Um, and so like 32 years of these epiphanies that it's like no one has any idea what they're doing. The vast majority of businesses fail just for the dumbest repeatable mistakes. They're just super obvious and people even know they're making them while they're doing them. And so if I just make a company that just does some pretty basic 
and just doesn't do stuff that I think isn't going to work. That's like, maybe, I don't know, maybe it can be fine. And you just do that for like a few years. And it's like, oh, actually, this seems to be working pretty good. And you were all wrong about the past 6,000 things you told me you're experts on. So uh, this next one, maybe I'm going to be skeptical on that too. Hmm. Professional or healthy skepticism, like throughout. And I think that's, that also creates change to have some kind of skepticism for the status quo and skepticism for the way it's being done. If you know that there are no rules, there's just consequences, then you kind of deliver your own path and create your own path as you go. And also learning over the time that kind of like the number one sign that you shouldn't trust someone is when they say, trust me. I think the number one sign <laughs> that someone's an idiot is when they're like, I am an expert in this. We're like, oh, got it. You mean you don't know anything about this. I understand. Because anyone who has to boast about their expertise means that you're not going to see my expertise unless I tell you. Whereas like actually people who know they're just like, man, you're smart. And so I'd say as going through this whole thing, just being pounded by, you know, all these self-styled experts and just uh, realizing that, you know, you can only be an expert in the past. Like no one is an expert in the future and things are changing so fast to even say you're an expert is to say you're obsolete. That's it. If you're trying to build the future, you don't want experts that those people are useless. It's like, you want people who don't know because then they're the ones who have to go and figure it out. So you mentioned the magical, mysterious garden. What do you think of the Beatles? Magical mystery tour, the octopus's garden. You don't think of the Beatles. All right, you know. All right, all right. Um, That's, that, was the, smart, that, not my thing. that was the question, yeah. Um, <laughs> creativity, you do talk about that a lot, like in hiring and, and all that. That was, it was just my range to get in, back into creativity. So do you consider yourself a creative in all of this too? Mm. That's, uh, I think the word creative in like as a noun is kind of like expert. It means not creative. Okay. It's kind of kind of thing. It's like if you have to if you have to brand yourself as creative, you're doing something wrong. Um, <laughs> I, I would say overwhelmingly, some of the least creative people I've met with are like the creatives, and it's just like so frustrating. So yes, I would say, I think we're I, I think we're very creative, but not in a tightly constrained like oh creativity is only what exists in Figma or something like that. It's like no, actually that's like the smallest piece of the puzzle. So I think if like, creativity, I would say is the it's not. You know, what makes your brain great is not how many neurons it has, it's how many connections between those neurons. Um, and so likewise, I think what makes a company creative is not how many people it has, but the connectivity of those people. Mm. And we have, we've worked very hard to have a flat organization uh, where everyone talks to everyone. Everyone's empowered to do anything. Everyone is constantly being informed about everything else. And so it just creates an environment that unlocks the potential for creativity. Because creativity doesn't happen. It's like you did this thing a million times and the million first time you're going to come up with a better idea. It's like, that's just not how it works. Like creativity is when someone who's never done it before came up with a new way to do it. Or it's like, uh, oh, I did this thing in this completely different context. And actually it feels similar to this. But like the only person who's going to find that new opportunity is the wrong person. It's going to be like the wrong person for the job is always the most creative to solve that job. And so I think we're constantly trying to like put the wrong person into the role to figure out what's new. So you said this in the interview, I think creativity is not the number of neurons you have, but the connectivity between those neurons. And then I think you just said that again in so many ways, but I like that statement, like the, mm. you're rewiring things and the connectivity is so important, especially in, you, in the interview we were referring to is when you're talking about everybody working asynchronously and 
still being connected. And that's a very difficult thing to achieve. Well, maybe building on that, going back to this idea of most companies are modeled after like this military sort of hierarchy. And I think it's because, you know, as a company grows, it's like basically at, at best on average, one person brings one person's worth of productivity. Like, you know, that's kind of an obvious statement. Um, and so it's a kind of a, a linear productivity. Like the best you can do is if you hire uh, 10 people, you get 10 man years of productivity, whatever it is sort of thing. But everyone can distract everyone else. And so every time you hire a new person, you actually distract everyone in your company a little bit more. And so you have a linear increase in productivity and you have an exponential increase in overhead. Um, and so at some point, actually, you cross a place where every new hire actually reduces your total productivity because the distraction they bring to your company as a whole exceeds the productivity they bring. And I think that this challenge, actually, is uh, how it what drives different companies. And I think the one challenge is to minimize the overhead is you minimize the number of people that each person talks to. And I think this is the hierarchical approach. The hierarchy is designed to minimize communication in an organization by putting everyone in a small team so that they actually, every person distracts the fewest number of other people. And then communication is regulated in this very hierarchical fashion in order to minimize communication overall. Uh, and I think that works incredibly well. It's super efficient. That's why most companies are hierarchies for pursuing a single top-down uh, objective. Because it's, especially if it's a well-known objective. It's like, I have an enterprise sales model. Same as the last company, the last 1,000 companies. Everyone's done this thing a million times. We're just going to sell this different kind of widget. It's like, okay, you don't. They're not banking the company's strategy on anything sort of creative. And so that's the right model for that. We're quite different. We're optimized to have the most talented people possible. And so it's the highest linear slope of basically our productivity. Every person we add brings so much value. And then we want to minimize the exponents of the overhead by having humility and basically saying it's like everyone is going to collaborate very well with everyone else. And so we can push that out quite a lot. But we're still a very small company. We have like 140 people. Last year, we had 140 people. Year before that, 140 people. And so I'd say, like, we're doing more and more. Revenue is going up. Everything's going up. But our headcount is not going up. And that's because we worked so hard to extract more and more creativity out of this flat organization without just, like, loading up bodies into it that sort of dragged down the entire project. A giant army has way more neurons than us. But we have more connected neurons than them. Connected neurons. I love that. So talk a little bit about it. And I don't know how much time you've got, but you know, I, I could go on for days about this. So <laughs> this, is, this is my favorite episode so far. So like you don't always do Expensicon. This is not like an annual occurrence. So, and it's been mm -hmm. a while since you had the last one. Why? Why? Why now? Good question. Um, I would say we view ExpenseCon as a good way to sort of correct market confusion. And most of the time, the market is not confused. <laughs> and so when I think back to the first one, for example, so the start of the company, we were growing up and to the right, all through just direct acquisition of customers. And so I was like, especially in the Silicon Valley VC community, just like, you know, everyone used us and learned about us and things like this. It, was, it wasn't for years. I don't know. We were probably like six years into the company or something like that. And then we're like, you know what? We should go to an accounting conference. I bet accountants would like us or something. I don't know. We just never talked to them, but like maybe. Um, and we show up, and we show up to the accounting conference, and we're like, hi, we're expensify. Expensive reports that don't suck. And they're like, oh, that's cool. You're kind of like tally. We're like, who? Like, yeah, this other company that. And, and we look at them. And we're like, they're a direct clone of us. 
like, what? They're just stealing all of our shit and claiming it's their own. And we're like, oh, this, this cannot stand. And so then like the first year we went to the accounting conferences and we had this tiny presence. But the advantage that we have is like, we're a real business. Like we have profit. And so we actually can spend, like outspend our competition on basically everything. And so year one, and the company conference is tiny presence. Year two, we come back, look the most epic booth possible. We buy every single sponsorship possible, engage with every single thought leader. We have every single everything. This is what I love. Um, and then we're like, <laughs> and then we're like, oh, and also uh, all of our top partners, we're going to bring them out to Maui for an all expense paid trip to our own personal conference so we can tell you about how different than we are from everyone else. And then so basically that was like a way that we used just to crush tally. And then like, they just basically like got, you know, acquired by some weird people. Embers or something. Or something. Like yeah. Yeah. Embers. Well, we refer to them as, uh, <laughs> yes, Frank and Spence actually. <laughs> um, and because they, it's basically just a graveyard for all of the companies that have like come up against us and died. And so, uh, that was kind of like maybe some of the contests going into the first one. So for ExpenseCon 2, I'm trying to think of like the market conditions that were driving that. I don't even remember, honestly. My memory's not the best. But basically, it was, there was something in the market that was just confusing. Like we were hearing one message and we're like, that doesn't sound right. And so we're like, how do we, how do we get the message out? That like, there's a confusion here we need to resolve. And so that's what we did at Pensacon 2 as well. But this time, we're like, how do you double down on Maui, we're like, oh, that's why we take everyone to Bora Bora. We're going to make it even more, more sick. And it's going to be like more great, like you know, bigger and better in every possible way sort of thing. And then we came out of that. And I think, you know, same thing. It's like, okay, we can like settled and solved the concern that we had going into it. And so I'd say probably for this one, same thing. It's basically the past couple of years, well, the first past few years has just been madness for a million different things. One is we have like all these, you know, like neocard companies coming up. They're like, oh, you know, and it's funny. Every single generation is the Expensify killer. It's just like, and they're always just like the Expensify killer. Like you look at like, I don't know, Ramp's homepage. It says Expensify all over that. It's basically like, God, you wouldn't even exist. Your branding would have no message if we didn't exist. And I, and I get it. We were like all anti-concur way back in the day. So I'm like, I'm flattered. I've been there. But like, it's kind of a desperate move. I was desperate once. I get it. Um <laughs> But I would say that the surprising thing in the market is just like, wait, you all think there's something there? They don't have a mobile app. What are you talking about? And so everything about these, I remember I started personally just by myself, a corporate card back in like 2007, before Marketo, before any of these things. It's, it's not that hard. The card technology has not changed since the 80s. It's, it's not that hard to do. The economics haven't been changed. Really nothing's changed about the entire industry for decades. The only difference is Marketo came out and made an API, so it's really easy to do cards. And everyone's like, mm -hmm. oh my God, I have a corporate card. And I'm like, whoa, 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 I did, this is actually not that hard in the first place. And also that by itself is a stupid business model. Like I, and I know because I started with it. Initially we were a card company. We were Expensify, the corporate card for the masses. And then we came out and everyone's just like, why? I mean, I got a card, I got an Amex, I've got all this sort of stuff. And like, but my expense reports suck. I'm like, oh, okay. And so that's why we shifted to Expensify, expense reports that don't suck. Um, it's just a reaction, not because it was hard, it, easier to do. It certainly was, as we already talked about. Central management is insanely more complicated than corporate cards, but that's why we did it. And then so it's, we're just like baffled. It's like, why does everyone think corporate cards are hot? They've never been hot. There's there's nothing differentiated about this product against a million other like Brex. Like they don't compete with us. They compete with American Express. Yeah. The only way like Brex is a huge partner of us. A huge fraction of Brex customers use Expensify. <laughs> like it's just one of our banks. And so I'd say 
we're just very confused by this whole thing. It's just like, I, I don't know. I think that there's all these like weird banking startups that are basically like competing after the dregs of the market. It's, it's not like, wait, American Express has never heard of any of these companies before? No, they know about them and they don't go after them because they're not credit worthy and there's just not a lot of margin there. And so I'd say like, yeah. it's just not a good business model. Now, I think what I didn't anticipate because I always make the same mistake is that VCs are madness. And the VC is basically an interest rates were zero. Um, and so, and as such, he's like, oh, what is a cool play I can make in order to make it, take out massive lines of credit and then somehow build some kind of like story around that. And so these, like basically all these startups, again, there's a zillion of them. They're all exactly the same because there's nothing hard to do. The hardest part they do is use Marketa and Marketa is not that hard either. And so it's like, and so they basically start a whole bunch of like these neocard businesses, raise a ton of money. That's the fourth age, right? I'm going into yeah, the, see, exactly. the ages. Yeah. Like, <laughs> the amount of money going into like advertising and all this sort of stuff for is basically like a tiny corporate card that's like not differentiated in any way was like me- astonishing. And we're just like, hey guys, like we have one of those too. It's, it's great, but like it's not nearly as important as anything else sort of thing. So I think that actually we started this idea of expensive con, this next expensive con, probably to like clarify. It's just like, whoa, 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 let's like, let's ground ourselves in the actual problems that accountants have. Has any accountant been like saying, I, w- I desperately wish I can get the corporate card? Not that many. No. They're like, there's a lot of problems out they're there. They're all just and saying, I desperately wish to go to Italy. That's what they're saying. <laughs> exactly. That's the real problem. Yeah. And so I think that uh, that might have been some of the context that kind of like when we initially started it. Then after that, like market collapsed and all this sort of stuff. And we see this again and again. Like Tally was dead way before we ever did ExpensiveCon. Eventually, like inevitably, the, the message we want to get out is out way before we actually did the event. But the event is basically like finalizing it and sort of like putting the nail in that coffin, if you will. And so I think that the neocards are already like, they're already collapsing mm-hmm. like because their economics just don't, there's actually no business underneath that. And you can only sustain that for so long, especially in the shitty economy. So I don't know. I think that um, that's some of the reasons that like, we've used to do expensive cons in the past is to kind of just correct a market misperception. And I think that's probably in play of it here too. But so much more has come out of it as well. Like every time we do this, we had sort of a goal, like we're going to kill Tally. Then like Tally dies. We suck at this conference to do. And then we do the conference. We're like, oh my God, that was amazing for all these reasons we didn't even anticipate. So I would say, I don't know exactly what's going to come out of this conference, but if history serves, it's going to be amazing. It's going to be dope. So you, you said expensify killers. Everybody was coming around that. So are you David or Goliath? Good question. I don't feel, I, I don't feel like Goliath because... Like we are so small compared to the things we want to do. This is kind of a question of like, like when are you no longer a startup? It's kind of like an interpretationist question. And I would say, I think you stop being a startup when you start thinking your best days are behind you. And it's like, cause most startups are like, you know, oh, things were awesome, but then we grew up and now yeah, we got our thing. We just kind of couldn't coast off into the horizon. sort of stuff. Like let's go off the sunset. Like we're not looking at the sunset. We're like, basically, I, I view it and the way I, I literally view the company and run it is it's a pre-revenue startup. Basically, it's like, what, oh, you think we're making money now? We haven't even started, guys. What are you talking about? <laughs> like everything we've built so far was basically a prototype. It was basically like, you know, in engineering, there's this concept of like, if you literally don't know what you're doing, just build it and then throw it away and then build it for real. Because like, that's the best way to learn something is just to try it. 
everything we've done today is just plan to throw one away. It's basically, it's like, okay, I want to learn about expense management. We did that. Okay, what about enterprise? Okay, with that. It's like, well, what about corporate cards? Yep, invoicing, bill processing, payroll, corporate travel, chat, all this stuff. Like, okay, cool, 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 cool. Now I kind of, we kind of get it. I think that Expensify is the best product in the market, but that doesn't mean it's a great product. Uh, it just means it's the best. Uh, a great product is something completely different than all of this. And I think we say, mm. oh, okay, cool. We've learned how to make the best product or we've built the best product. And in the process, we've learned how to make a great product. And let's go out and great, make that. And so I'd, so I'd say we're, we spend all of our attention on building the next generation of Expensify, creatively called new Expensify. That's the only thing we're working on. Like Expensify hasn't changed in years, really. The Expensify that, you know, customers experience because it's pretty good. Like, I'm not going to say it's perfect, but it's like, you, you, it can't be 10 times better and still be like what it is right now. It could be like 20% better, 50% better, more reliable, faster, whatever it is. But it's, it's fundamentally kind of like it's trapped in the local maximum, that design. And so we're going after a global maximum, which is just a completely different design. And that's what we've all been working on for years. And so I think that, no, I feel very much like the David in this because <laughs> uh, for one, it's my name. And two, because we haven't even launched yet in my mind. It's just that our prototype is so valuable. It just happens to support $100 million. If this is a fifth age of Expensify. What's the 10th age look like? Oh, Ooh. man, you can't even imagine. You, but like, actually, you're alluding say, to it, but I need more meat. I need to know what you're thinking. No, I'd say, <laughs> but actually, I would say, but you actually can't even imagine. Or, or not, that's not the right way of putting it. I can't communicate it to you. And, when I, and what I mean by this is not because I don't want to. It just says, like, it's beyond me. I, I, there's this concept, I, I, in my mind, I think it was called the imagination game. What's in my mind, if I were to describe it to you, like, I have this very rich, nuanced, very complicated, powerful vision that are condensed down to, like, 100 words. And then... You would hear those words, and then in your mind, you would hear something, like you would imagine something completely different. That's not the thing that's in my mind. And you'd be like, well, actually, that thing sucks. Like that thing you just described that you think's amazing, what I'm imagining sucks. And I'm like, yeah, okay, well, what you're imagining sucks, but you're not imagining the same thing I'm imagining. And it would take so long to even communicate this vision that like it wouldn't even work. There's so much context and history and gambles and a bunch of other things that just couldn't really be communicated. And so I think that a challenge is being an entrepreneur is minding the imagination gap, recognizing the difference between your reach and your grasp. I'm reaching for this very, very long-term future, and I'm certain that we're going to get there. I don't know when, but the how is actually pretty clear. We just got to build. It just takes time, though. And in many cases, until, it's, until we're just much closer to it, I just can't communicate it very effectively. And that's a real challenge. And it's like a real bump uh, as an entrepreneur because like, we're always like, we sound crazy. And it's like, that's never going to work. And then you actually do it. And they're like, that was obvious. That doesn't seem that hard. And it's like, well, yeah, well, I, it was obvious. You just couldn't imagine it. Or really, I couldn't communicate it to you effectively. Yeah. Um, Articulate. So I, I would love to communicate that future to you. Yeah, the sometimes you, just have, you have to touch and feel something in order to understand it. And I, I, I feel that yeah. sometimes too. When I have like ideas and I try to explain it to someone and it, it, until I actually like spell it out and make it and create it. And then it's like, okay, people get it. Well, but even on that, the question would be like, so, but why? Why even tell your friends? Like, yeah. unless you're asking for something specific, sharing an idea too early is just demoralizing. Yeah. Going back to what the biggest mistakes. Yeah, actually, now I know my answer. My biggest mistakes are always failing to mind the imagination gap, trying to pitch an idea that I cannot effectively communicate. And then that creates 
opposition to it and in worse and it makes it more complicated to happen. So I've actually now I is you think I sound nuts? What I actually have in my mind is this will just seem like complete madness then yeah. because this is only the part that I'm talking about and there's 10 more steps after that. Yeah. Yeah. And, and you don't need to articulate your vision to anybody until it's there, like until you've seen it. Yeah, exactly. Until I need something from someone, there's no reason to communicate it. Yeah. And you also have people along with you for the ride, right? That have been with you since day one that have lived and breathed it. So it's much easier for them to jump on board with your vision versus you trying to explain that to a third party that hasn't been with you since day one. Yeah, that's true. But I would say it still exists internally. And again, the company doesn't just like do what I want. I, like I don't, even in the company, I don't have any actual internal authority. So like, okay, we are doing this particular thing. Like that's just not how our company works. And I could talk about our LT voting trust and how even legally, like even, yes, I have the most shares, but I just, the power structure does not work in that fashion. I am limited by what I can convince people to do, just like everyone else in the company. And yes, probably I've put the most thought, thought into it. I'm articulate and I can do a lot of things, but like I'm very much limited to what I can visualize and communicate to someone else. And that's only a fraction of what I would like to do. Social networks. I think that's this generation's cigarettes. I think that's like <laughs> going to be the death of us. So it's, it's funny you should say that. So I was thinking like, um, so there's this book that I love. I don't like, I don't like a lot of, sort of pop psychology books because I think there's no repeatability to them and there's, they're more just like allegoricals and they are actually like scientific. Like all the ones behind the me? one that I love. <laughs> I, I can't all say right, that well, right, but cool, yeah, cool. maybe. One that I love is called Everything Bad is Good for You. Ooh. And the premise of the book is, it starts off with a series of quotes from like, you know, Aristotle's present day. And every quote is some variation upon uh, the world's going to hell and popular culture's to blame. And it talks about like way, way back in the day. So it's like, oh, this stuff called writing sucks. Because no one's going to remember anything more. They can just write it down. And then it's like, what about our culture of lore and song and memory? So it's just going to ruin culture. And then like it goes for like a thousand years. It's like, well, obviously writing is the best thing that's ever happened. But wait, um, but now literacy on a mass scale? Now everyone's going to hear all this stuff. Like how, does, how do we maintain control if everyone can read? Because obviously knowledge is power. And then it goes for like another thousand years. And it's like, no, actually, no. Mass literacy is obviously an incredibly good thing. But the printing press? Now anyone can write a book? Wait, wait, wait. Actually, only trusted people should write books. People are going to write all sorts of crazy out there, things that aren't even true. It's going to end of the humanity. And then it goes for like another thousand years or whatever. It's just like, oh, okay, actually, the rate, like books are the best thing ever, obviously. But radio? Ugh, it doesn't require your imagination anymore. You can just hear the story, someone telling it to you, and then TV, and then internet. And it's like, so obviously, every one of these things was like the greatest invention that humanity had ever come up to at that time. But at the time, it was actually widely uh, reviled, generally by the people in power. And mm -hmm. they pushed back against it. This book was written, I think, in the early 2000s, kind of before social media. So I wasn't able to comment on this. But I, I, it seems like it's following the same patterns. And so I'd say, I don't know. I feel like, and so I have a seven-and-a-half-year-old daughter. And you can't help as a parent but, like, you know, judge all the other parents around you. And so it's an interesting contrasting attitude towards screen time. Mm. And so, like, my attitude is, it's like, I grew up on computers. I came out okay. Um, and the idea that somehow you're going to fight against all technology and win, like, good luck with that, parent. I think instead I've said, so like, okay, Hazel, your iPad is always available to you. But it's just, like, it's, it's just boring. Like, after you just watch enough of it, you watch enough YouTube clips or whatever it is, she's yeah. just bored of it. And so most people say, like, screen time is crack. Basically, it's, like, the ultimate negotiation tool to get people to do what you want. Uh, whereas 
for Hazel, I'm basically like, no, screen time is like, you know, I mean, veggies because she likes vegetables, but like, no, it's just boring. It's like basically, it's if, if you can't get anyone to play with you and you're tired or whatever it is, then go to your iPad. But like, if anyone wants to play with her, she'll drop that thing in a heartbeat. And so I'd say, I think kids are so much smarter than we give them credit for. It's kind of a cliche thing to say, but I think that we grew up, we're, when it comes to social media, we're like, it's online. Well, then it must be true. But like, that's just not how kids are growing up. They're like, oh, no, 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 yeah. half the false. Um, yeah. And I get it. And I, and I, and I know how to determine between truth and fiction. And I recognize the, the risks at play because my brain is really good at taking this kind of stuff up. And they're just growing up in a completely different environment than we did. And yeah, we are terrible in social media. Absolutely. Are our kids terrible in social media? I don't know. Now, I'm not going to say that, like, I do think there's a lot of super negative patterns, like anti-patterns in place of like, especially capitalizing upon people's like self-doubt, body images, things like this. Absolutely. There's a huge uh, range of problems. And I'm, I'm not convinced they aren't social problems. And I also don't think that it feels like everyone has always thought that humanity has been an unbroken stream of successes up until their lifetime. <laughs> and then it's all basically downhill from here. Yeah. It feels like everyone has always thought that. And shocker, it feels like that right now to us too, but it has never been true from anyone else. It might be true today. It just seems unlikely. So I don't know. I, I feel actually think I'm pretty optimistic. About yeah, that's an optimistic look at it. And I, I never really thought of it in that context. So then tell us a little bit about how you're going to become a social network or what you can share of that vision. Sure. I think the problem I have with all the social networks out there, and I think their core weakness, comes down to their business model. A successful engagement with any of the social networks out there is that you, you come on, you just hang out, you accomplish nothing as you leave. And they're like, yeah, great engagement. Like that was like, the, the, they're, just, they're optimized to waste your time accomplishing nothing whatsoever. And so our business model is different. We're optimized to help you get done. And so I think that uh, the expense by platform, if you view it like a social network. So first, like who is it for? Every social network is designed for something different. Like, you know, uh, Facebook is to, you know, spread rumors. Twitter is to look at cats. Uh, Instagram <laughs> is to like, do food porn, like snaps, real porn. And uh, TikTok is who even knows anymore. Um, and so I'd say, but none of them are designed to accomplish something in this real world. Yeah. And so I think that Expensify should be a social network for people who want to get done. Now, it's obvious getting done in a business context is the most clear because we have a clear goal, resources, all this sort of stuff. But then if you say like, most people don't realize, yes, most of our paying customers are businesses, but we have an incredible range of nonprofits on us, um, like churches, nonprofits, things like this, because especially churches, they got complicated tax status. They have a lot of money. Most reimbursements go out to churchgoers, not to employees of the church. Um, and so we're designed, like, you can reimburse anyone if you just know their phone number. You don't even need to know their ad email address. It certainly doesn't need to be a company-issued email address. And so, like, we're the only company that works like that. So we work in this quasi-business world. But then we also have a whole bunch of, like, millions of individuals that just use us for, like, tracking their own personal expenses or whatever it might be. And so we, the bulk of our users actually are not business users. They are just social users in these other contexts because there's a whole bunch of complicated real-world scenarios that the platforms out there are just not designed well for. Let's take something like uh, I work with my neighborhood to make block party every year. It's a nightmare. Like, it's like, I don't really know who they are because it's like the person lives next to you. Like, what is their address off the top of your head? Do you know? Probably not. What's their phone? Their last name? It's like, there's a lot of things you just don't really know. How do I look them up? I like, I don't, it's just, do I walk over there? And it's like, it's actually quite complicated. And so I think the Expensify 
social network. It should be something that is just like one day there's going to be a feature uh, It's going to be like, uh, hey, I notice because I know your address because of a bunch of different reasons. You look like you're in sort of a residential neighborhood. Uh, do you want to host a block party this summer? And you'd be like, I don't know. I never really thought about it. I'm like, okay, yeah. And it's like, cool. I've looked up all your neighbors. Here's who they are because I can access them to public records. What dates work well for you? And it was like, okay, well, these kind of ones. It's like, great. Choose some pictures. It's your name, all this sort of stuff. Great. I'm going to mail out a postcard to all of them and say like, hi, Nicole's hosting a block party and you're invited. And so it's like basically click here, scan this QR code, join the chat room. We already know your account. It's already set up. You can talk to them. It's like, okay, I didn't actually know who Nicole was. Kind of. I've seen her, but like, don't really know that. Cool. Here's the dates. Make a decision. Here's the things we're trying to buy. We're even like the bouncy hats. It's going to cost us much. Here's the budget we're going to do for it. Chip in here. Just like chip in for all this kind of stuff. Like there is a ton of actual financial collaboration that goes into these social things that the tools are not well optimized for. Think of like every bachelor party you've ever been to. Like weddings are like so complicated to pull off. Even just like managing split expenses with your roommates in college or anything. There's a million of these things that's like they just... We kind of forget about them. They're like, oh, it's called like adulting or whatever it is. Why is yeah. adulting hard? It shouldn't have to be hard. Someone should make a platform to make it easy. And that's what we're doing. I love that. Yeah, I have to deal with that every time. Like every year for my birthday, I plan a trip to Tahoe. It's like getting the air, oh, getting yeah. people to commit. Then everybody's putting money on their own cards and trying to reconcile. I used yeah. to have a spreadsheet I would do after every trip. Now there's split wise, which kind of helps, but not everybody's on it. So it's always a huge pain in the ass. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly right. And so I think that there's there's a ton of room for doing more of this stuff if you get out of like the we're an enterprise startup that sells expense management mindset. If it's like, yeah. no, 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 we're an everything app, they can do anything. And there's yeah. a lot of problems that need, need to be solved. And I think we could solve them. So I know we could probably go on for days and days. Do we have anything else, Nicole? Do we, any other questions? Um, no, this is awesome. I think I wrote down like 10 quotes. <laughs> I, I wrote down three awesome pages quotes. of, of yeah. quotes. Yeah. And <laughs> still, I get to go back and listen to this again and again. This is going to be great. This is awesome. Um, thank you for spending time with us and coming on. I don't know what we did to deserve this. I mean, so <laughs> thank you. Cool. I don't know. Okay. I, hey, thanks so yeah. much. You have a great day. Thank you, David. Yeah, really See appreciate it. Take Peace care. Out, See you. Bye. Bye. Welcome back to our class. It's the guide. Please take a seat. Step into this unique guidance session. Navigate with me. It's the capital S. Oh, yes, I'm fresh. Y apostrophe. OKR apostrophe. You see, the show is intended to guide you with advice. Vision goes on mission. It's time accounting. Hi, yeah. This profession, I think they're in the mood for some fun and inspiration. Hell okay. Yeah. What up, Scott? Gotta lead with ambition. What's that, greed? You gotta grab your attention. Intention? And it's gotta be abundant. Public Accountants. In unexpected places, we ask for your attention. Conversations about the state of the profession. Emotional intelligence, atomic habits in a bundle. Infinite game, Rye Holiday, we stay humble. Find your purpose in class with tech apps. Jedi mindsets, James Ash has got your back. For health to discuss her vision for the profession. Evolution conversation with Jeff Wilson II. And I'm going to continue to put
put the rap down with impact now And if you're active listening, mind the imagination gap now Yeah, Janitor Scott, coming to you live from the closet with a bucket and a mop So find a cozy spot, we all want financial freedom A-C-C-O-U-N-T-I-N-G-H-I-G-H, preach Putting this course together, sit back, relax, open your mind, classes in session Guidance, class at Accounting High It's Guidance, class at Accounting High And um, it's Guidance, Monday in Accounting High Show So tune in to the next episode.